This is Guns and Butter. Understanding the, the politics of this, it really doesn't look that different from industry. The Republicans are very much like a good corporation, and the Democrats very much like a very bad corporation. There's not a lot of competition. There's competition at some level between these two things, but you know, you see this all the time in industry. You see, you know, sort of a dominant firm and then a subordinate firm and a, and a facade of competition. Like the classic examples were the cereal companies many years ago. They compete. Not on price, not on quality, not on nutrition, but you know the prize in the box. So there was no meaningful competition, and it turns out that's what we have in politics. I mean, if this was business, if this was business, they would be sued for antitrust violations. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Stephen Freeman. Today's show was the 2004 presidential election stolen. Dr. Freeman is a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Organization Dynamics, where he teaches research methods and survey design, a domain that includes polling. He has also taught on the faculty at the Wharton School and at the Universidad de San Andreas in Argentina and the Central American Institute of Business Administration in Costa Rica where he conducted management courses for private and public sector leaders and faculty workshops on research methods. Dr. Freeman is author with Joel Blyfus of Was the 2004 Presidential Election Stolen? Exit Polls, Election Fraud, and the Official Count. On the afternoon of Election Day 2004, exit polls indicated that John Kerry would win the election by 5 million votes and become the next president of the United States. That proved not to be the case. On February 15, 2007, Dr. Freeman spoke about the 2000 and 2004 presidential elections for Project Censored at Sonoma State University. Dr. Stephen Freeman. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for showing up. I got into this quite uh, accidentally. I was a, um, well, I was, I've never been that political a person. You know, I follow it and kind of looked on in horror in 2000 as uh, uh, what I thought I'd lived in a democracy. I, actually ret- I was actually living overseas in Latin America for three years between 1997 and 2000 and came back to Philadelphia and in um, September 2000, to the Cradle of Liberty, and um, uh, just astounded in November 2000, just just seeing what had transpired in the election. Uh, in particular, shocking to me was were three things. One is um, the way the newspapers were. Well, s- several things. One, Gore's readiness to concede on election night. We'll talk a little bit about that and. Then the media, the way they covered it, it seemed, you know, the supposedly liberal uh, media, the Washington Post and New York Times would run three editorials saying, uh, we need determine now, you know, move on, and uh, Bush won, and the, you know, one that says maybe count the votes, you know, occasionally, and then the, uh, and then the Miami count, and then the Supreme Court decision. I mean, the, in Miami, when a mob, Brooks Brothers mob, stopped the count, 
and then uh, the Supreme Court appointment. I mean, I, I'd lived in Central America, and I thought, you know, no way could this have happened in Costa Rica. You know, it's not a... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's incredible, not even in Nicaragua, maybe Honduras, where the U.S. had been, had been messing with the government for, for 40 years. So it just uh, astounded me, but, you know, what could I do? I go back to, back to my work and uh, figure the problem gets resolved, right? Um, but then 2004 happens, and I had been teaching a course in, in, in polling, teaching workshops, actually, in polling, and had just mentioned an exit poll as being you know, the kind of ideal poll. It's quite different than, for those of you not familiar with it, it's, it's really quite different than a, a telephone poll. I liken the difference to between um, trying to predict rainfall in a, for a storm several days in advance versus just putting your beakers out and measuring what happened that day. You don't have to worry about who's going to show up to vote or even contacting voters. Right now that's very difficult because 10% of people don't, even have landline phones. And then another large percentage, including the young and the mobile in particular, don't, aren't typically home in the evenings to answer them. Then um, you don't have to worry about people actually showing up, who's going to figure out who's going to vote that day, or, or the possibility of them changing their minds. So you just ask people upon leaving the polling place uh, who they who, who they voted for in, a, in an anonymous questionnaire. It's not like you and I, you have to admit to voting for Bush, which is the reason why people thought the exit polls were off. No, you just fill out a form and you drop it in an anonymous, in an anonymous box. So the problem is always that they've been too accurate. The problem is that they're too accurate, that they allowed the press to report on the results or know who won the election even before the, the votes were counted. Then all of a sudden, in 2000, uh, they're not accurate anymore. You know, uh, 2000, they showed that Gore won Florida by a large margin and, uh, you know, impossibly far off. Bush won, the, Bush won the state anyway. And then it got much worse in 2002 and 2004. All of a sudden, instead of, you know, despite refinements in technique and improvements in process and more and more money devoted to it, all of a sudden the results go bad, right? Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense and neither did every other explanation put in the, put in the newspaper. So, you know, it didn't really, didn't really um, wash. You know, I talked about being stunned in 2000, but in 2004, it was really a shock a day as I did this. The first shock was sitting there. Um, you know, I was sitting there watching the if you go back to November 2nd, 2004, you, you'll recall that during the day, it was widely understood that, in fact, Bush lost the election, that Kerry had been elected president, that the exit polls showed he won. Other polls showed that Bush's unfavorability rating exceeded his favorability rating. More than 50% of voters who turned out to the polls said he was not doing an adequate job. And historically, uh, re-election campaigns have always been referendum on incumbents. It's been very accurate predictor of the actual vote, how people rate the presidency. So it's that as well. And the other thing was it was very high turnout throughout the country, um, which has always been a favorable sign for Democrats. And in this election, like no other, people who don't tend to vote regularly, the young and, and the poor, showed up in... in unusually high numbers. 
So anyway, you know, we had these things that that night confirmed the data. You know, I was looking at the exit poll data. And in state throughout state, especially the battleground states, um, Kerry had won. You know, that Kerry had, um, he had won among males, 51 to 49 in Ohio, as in other states, other battleground states, among females by a slightly larger margin, and a fairly convincing victory. But that's not what they were saying on TV. They were saying he lost Ohio, and this was repeated in battleground state after battleground state. And so, you know, how could that be? And I went to bed kind of wondering. The next morning, I, um, I went to look at the results, and I see something altogether different. You know, an hour later, all of a sudden, you know, there's a, there's a few more voters. I didn't show you the number of respondents. And all of a sudden, um, Bush won, you know? The numbers completely changed. And uh, this was, again, repeated throughout the thing. No explanation given anywhere. You know, in fact, we barely heard about the exit polls again. You know, to the degree we heard about them, it was to say that, well, they indicated that the determining factor was moral values. That's what gave Bush the election. And uh, there were a few bizarre explanations, like the fact that um, it was the early exit polls just that Kerry voters showed up early and that this late Russia Bush voters changed it, or that they missampled, they took too many women. All these explanations were impossible and absolutely wrong. And not one meaningful explanation emerged, and, and the president questioned it. So that was shock number two. I wrote a paper then. Well, first I asked my colleagues if there was any sense, and they said, no, uh, we don't know. You know, good questions. And so uh, I wrote a paper a week after the election, circulated it just among colleagues, and, and this is a good strategy, by the way. If you want something widely read, I put on big, bold letters, do not circulate, uh, draft, <laughs> draft paper. And uh, the thing went all over the world. And, um, you know, some people writing to the president saying, uh, this guy should be fired, you know, this is an outrage, like Dan Rather, and um, others just, you know, the usual FUs and liberal wacko and all this stuff, and, uh, but most people saying thank you, you know, finally somebody says, saying the obvious, which is all it was, it was just really documenting the obvious. And uh, the third group were people actually writing in with evidence of fraud throughout the country. And I passed those on to John Conyers, and that's how we originally made contact. So this was the beginning of my shocking education into our uh, electoral processes. And, and again, it really was a shock a day. If you go to the PowerPoints, I mean, what, what are some of them? I mean, some of the big three are electronic voting. You know, this is the greatest, in my opinion, this is the greatest fraud ever perpetuated on a people ever. It is, um, it is just astounding how, how easy it is to change the programming, right? It's just, it's just incredibly easy. That's what's called Easter eggs in, in computing languages. You put something in a particular day, or, or you make it so that if somebody hits a button somewhere in, in San Diego or in, in Dublin, Ohio or something, they can, they can systematically change things. Or they plug in Mickey Mouse, something that nobody would ever guess, a particular sequence of of letters and the results are different and or or it can destroy the code and these things even though they're not supposed to be wired together they are and it's well documented there a Princeton professor recently did a study you know with one minute contact with one machine was able to alter votes system-wide 
And the, the best analogy, you know, I know I'm preaching to the converted here, so I don't want to just waste everybody's time, but it's good to keep in mind one of the things we have to be able to do is to, to persuade others. That's really, you know, the goal of a group like this, is to be able to systematically talk to other people and persuade them. And it's, it's really quite simple. I mean, there's a couple ways to think about it. You could think about it in a criminal in terms of means and motive and opportunity, the standard analysis of any crime. In this case, the means are just incredibly simple. Um, the motive is, is clear, even though you would never imagine it from reading the newspaper, what, why would we do it? I mean, they say, trust us, you know. What, what incentive do we have to, to change the results? But um, it's apparent, the stakes are incredible. You know, just as a tiny little iota of what they can do as presidency is give out an $8 billion contract to their buddies at Halliburton, uncontested, a no-bid contract, $8 billion. And uh, that's, again, just one tiny little thing, raising almost no, no uh, outcry from anybody, neither the Democrats nor the press nor, nor anyone else. So that's what they could do. So the motive is, is obvious. And then the opportunity's there because nobody's in a position to question it. So you could look at it that way. You could also have just a few simple arguments. And one of them is the fact that Nobody has any good reason to trust the results. There's no confirmation that votes are counted as cast. I mean, one good analogy to give to people is this idea of a man behind the curtain. Imagine that, you know, most of us would be very uncomfortable with this situation. Go up and instead of me writing in my ballot who I'm voting for, there's a man behind the curtain there. I don't even see him. Instead of me writing down my vote, I tell him and he writes the vote. And obviously, and this is something that's actually been used in some places, you know, obviously corrupt. In the 1980s, there was a, what was called an emergency in India. Just turned the country upside down, and it was because of election fraud, and they've sort of resolved it. It's actually one of the many hopeful examples we have, but at the time, systematically throughout the country, the untouchables were disenfranchised, and it was this system exactly there. Many cases illiterate, they were not given the right to vote. In fact, there were Brahmins who said, we'll, we'll write your vote for you. Now, obviously, that's, there are problems with that system. You know, uh, they may not hear you, they may make a mistake, or they may think you're, they know better. You know, well, that's a foolish vote. I'm going, to, I'm going to do better. I'm going to vote properly for him. Or, as we discussed just a second ago, with, with motive, there may be me, they may have their own reasons for, for casting their vote differently. And obviously, that's a flawed system. Almost anybody, you tell them that system, they'll realize it. The thing is, with voting machines, it's exactly the same, except that the voting machine makers, the programmers, are not changing one vote, and you don't see them, they're behind the curtain, and... Uh, they're not changing one vote, they're changing literally millions of votes with a single two lines of programming code. You're listening to author and researcher, Dr. Stephen Freeman. Today's show was the 2004 presidential election stolen. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Moreover, you know, you think about this a little bit and I mean, it, maybe it's not a shock when you think about the whole way the system is structured, but again, just me beginning in my research on this, 
okay, say, say for some bizarre reason you have to have this system. And they say, well, you have to trust somebody, right? You know, as it turns out, the people we're trusting with this are, you, you would expect a few minimal qualifications, a certain degree of impartiality. As it turns out, these people are not remotely impartial. They are central contributors, central participants on the, for the administration. They go and attend what are called the, the Rangers camp, the key supporters of Bush. They go to his Crawford camp. Not only the president, but a, the chair of the largest voting manufacturing company. You would expect some minimal degrees of honesty, you know. But these people, in, in several cases, there's been major, major civil suit settlements, including one here in California, and criminal convictions. Several of the primary Diebold programmers had been convicted for embezzlement, which in the modern day is almost the equivalent of vote fraud, vote skimming, because you're skimming money from one account to another, you're skimming votes from one to the, one to the other. Conflict of interest, you, you'd expect this man behind the curtain, he can't be a candidate himself, could he? In fact, he is, one of the senators. You know, if you, if you want to place money on the next president, Chuck Hale's a good bet. The, the former president of one of the, the second largest company, Chuck Hagel, the same person who won these two long shot victories to become senator in 1996, winning uh, as an unknown candidate, beating a well-known um, former attorney general for the Republican nomination, and then the one big Republican surprise victory against the popular incumbent to gain the Senate office. And transparency. We'll talk about that. No transparency in operations. You'd expect at least to know what's going on. No, all private. And they say, well, you know, this is all theoretical, right? No. We happen to have an experiment in Snohomish County, Washington. Two-thirds of the county voted on paper, one-third on machines. Should be the same, right? Well, that's what you would think. But in fact, although the, the Democrat won on, won on uh, paper, she lost on machines, lost by 10 percentage points, a statistical absolute impossibility, but that's what happened. And we know about this in great detail because this happened to be one of the few areas where there really was a recount where they, we got machine data. It was because it was so close, the Republican candidate paid for it, and so Paul was able to get this data. Not only did the Republican win on machines, doing 10 percentage points better than he did on paper, but it turns out where there were problems on election day, he won by yet more, another, another four percentage points. Where there were changes in the central processor in those precincts, won by, won by 16%. And then in several malfunctioning DREs where they had to be taken out of operation, won by a whopping 50%. You know, that, a 50 percentage point difference from the, from the other numbers. So these are numbers that just are not plausible uh, statistically, but, you know, there, here's our real world example. We had plenty more in 2006. So anyway, so that's one big set of shocks. Okay, still theoretical possibilities. No, where we have actual, so it's not just, it's not just that elections can be stolen. It's not just theoretical. But the second big point that you can make to anyone who you're talking about, and the second big set of shocks for me, is that where we've actually done an investigation, there is well-documented fraud. 
our, our best quantitative estimates based on exit polls and other data indicate that George Bush did not win Ohio by 120,000 votes, but lost by half a million. That's what the numbers indicate. And in fact, when you go in and you do this thing systematically, you can account for those votes. I mean, you can account for it county by county through a wide range of techniques. And other people have done this. Uh, in particular, there's a new book by, by Bob Fetrakis and Harvey Wasserman on what happened in Ohio. And they, they systematically document what happened throughout the state, and that can be done. So, I mean, just some examples about vote spoilage, um, vote switching in Cuyahoga County, the same county in which workers have since been convicted. Nobody in the public knows this because it appeared in no major newspapers, but they were convicted of fraudulently um, not conducting the recount. Now, why don't you do that? Because the count was wrong. They had to fudge the recount. Um, so anyway, all these things, I don't even want to talk about them anymore. Okay, so, so those are the second shocks. That in fact, it's not hypothetical. These are well documented all over. The third thing is that the quantitative data indicates, yes, Kerry won. See the exit polls, not only the exit polls, but if in fact voters, this is what happened, if voters, um, this is how voters said they cast their ballots. If, if in fact the vote was how voters said they voted, then um, rather than losing in Ohio, New Mexico, Nevada, the exit polls indicate really far beyond the shadow of a doubt that he won those three states. Probably also won Florida, probably won Ohio and Colorado. So again, rather than in Ohio it was extreme, but also New Mexico, Nevada, he won a convincing electoral vote victory and also a convincing plurality nationwide. If voters had in fact voted as they said they did, um, then Bush did not win the nation by three million votes, but rather lost six to seven million. And it, and it really is beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, this is what we know from the exit poll, that if in fact Kerry's percentage of the official count was 48 percentage, if that was the case, then you conduct an exit poll these are the likelihood of exit poll outcomes. 90% of the times, it would be something between 47 and 50%. 99% of the time, he'd get something 46 to 58. But this is the number he got in the exit poll, 54.2%. I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, you don't usually use the term impossible in social science, but this is impossible. No way could this happen. So the big, the big three points are, that we have a system where there's no reason for any confidence in the count, there's been widespread fraud documented, and third, all the quantitative data indicates that the count was far off, off on the order of 10 million votes. Okay, so again, preaching to the converted here. So what do we do from here? I mean, one of the questions is, was this an isolated example? No. 2002, 2005, probably 2006. And the incredible thing is that going forward, there's almost no question but that an election can be stolen. There's virtually no debate about that. I mean, it's been proven in study after study that these machines can be altered easily, trivially easily. The only real question is if any particular election was stolen, a, a something that takes tremendous effort after the fact to do. So we're going forward in a very vulnerable situation and, and it's time to really assess 
what kind of nation we are and in what, did, what it means to be a democracy and where we are with that. And as it turns out, you know, most people place a very high value on democratic values. Paul's done some uh, terrific work. I mean, one of the polls he commissioned is on, on values. And there's tremendous convergence of values across this country, that the right to vote is a central feature of this nation, that it's, it's you know, centrally important. And the logic of that is such the, the same. I mean, even you go to the new Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Roberts, in his testimony, he says, the right to vote is, in fact, preservative of all other rights. Without that right, you have no power to remove from office those who have abused power. And you're ultimately at the mercy of those who are in control. So it is absolutely centrally important logically, and we have tremendous convergence of values about that. But we have to point out the contradiction between that reality and the facts of our system. I mean, there's a, there was an interesting document uh, laid out in 1990s at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. All the democracies, U.S. taking the lead, got together to affirm what are the real values of democracy? How do you measure it? How do we, how do we instill democratic values in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union? And basically seven principles were established. Universality, equality, fairness, transparency, the idea of a secret ballot, that elections are free, and that there's accountability. And you can actually measure these things for the most part. I mean, the first one, universality, as it turns out, you know, we almost take for granted the amount of vote suppression and, and vote manipulation. Disenfranchisement is one shocking thing. Many of you may have heard, I mean, how many of you have heard about the voting scrub rolls in Florida? 80,000 people were illegally tossed off the voting rolls because their name happened to be somewhat similar to somebody who committed a felony somewhere in the country. Just totally fraudulent thing. Um, done by a company called Choice Point, which, by the way, is funding one of the supposed uh, voting reform companies, voting reform organizations, Vote Trust, the biggest one of them. But anyway, a lot of people have heard of that, even though it didn't get reported in the press. That one sort of got out. But what we, what we don't take into consideration there is the fact that so many people are legally disenfranchised. You know, in 14 states, mostly from the old Confederacy, Anyone who's ever committed a felony is no longer has the right to vote. They lose the right to vote for life. And you might think, well, you know, that's not a real important thing. How many people have committed felonies? Well, it turns out that 7% of the population in Florida has lost the right to vote for life. And, of course, that's not equally distributed throughout the population. Among certain groups, felonies are handed out like high school diplomas. Um, somebody has purchased marijuana. They could receive probation, a few months probation, and a felony conviction for life. And uh, turns out one-third of African-American males are eligible to vote. One-third are not eligible. Uh, so that's good, I guess. Two-thirds are eligible. Right, so... Um, and there's all kinds of dissuasion. In the book, I mentioned something that, well, you know, I talk about this. I don't, I don't dwell on it because, you know, if it was just disenfranchisement and dissuasion of voting, things like 
the fact that they had eight hours lines at the liberal, a liberal university in Ohio or, or seven hours in some black precincts of Columbus. You know, if they would have just won that way, well, they would have stolen it. You'd have to congratulate them and say they stole it fair and square because that's the way the system works. The uh, African-Americans have been, you know, systematically disenfranchised more even by the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, traditionally, and uh, it's just sort of accepted. But in fact, what our analysis is only of those who did in fact overcome the hurdles of, of registration and, and, and voting that day. But nevertheless, on, this, on the scale of universality, it's very successful. All these techniques are very successful. The US ranks 139 this is where we rank in the world. This is, out of, this is out of like 160 countries that have held elections. Italy, it's a little different because they're required. It's, uh, they have to vote. They get, they get fines if they don't. But, um, but most of these other countries, that's not true. Certainly not Austria or, or some of the others up there. But we're, we're below Myanmar, which has won Human Rights Association recognition for the, the worst abusers on earth and the Central African Republic, a real hotbed of democracy, the U.S. is there. And, and the bizarre thing is the USA, this is, this is overstating the U.S. participation because this is based on turnout. In fact, the U.S. percentage of votes counted is even lower because we also lose about 2% of ballots every year. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. Stephen Freeman. Today's show was the 2004 presidential election stolen. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, the next standard is equality. As that means that all votes would be counted equal and that all people have the right to vote. The U.S. doesn't measure up very well on this one either. First, I had referred to lost votes. In fact, lost votes, like disenfranchisement, doesn't occur equally at all, but, you know, in typically around the country, in the average affluent precinct, it's somewhere well under 1%, but you go into poor precincts, and especially black precincts in Republican-controlled areas, and you get numbers like, uh, well, this is a particularly high one, but in 2004, some black precincts in Republican-controlled counties lost 25% of their votes. I mean, there's other things about the system that are inherently unfair, too. We just have this antiquated electoral college, which systematically gets uh, defended by various groups, but basically it disenfranchises people from states like New York or California, where it doesn't matter how much they win by. So the election is decided in these states like Florida and Ohio. Uh, two senators per state, California with its 35 million, last I heard, number of uh, population has the same two senators as Wyoming with 400,000. So, you know, effectively disenfranchised in that way. Not quite as bad as D.C., which is no voting representation. The only uh, real empirical reason for that is because they're 80% black and they will clearly put in Democratic uh, representatives, and then gerrymandering. I mean, this country has fewer competitive races than any other country on Earth. Only, only about one-tenth of all congressional seats are 
are, are seriously contested. The rest are just made safe for the incumbents. Um, are they fair? You know, again, looking at, looking at 2000 and 2004, you sometimes see in like Super Bowl, there's, there may be a bad call or something or a questionable call and there's a national uproar. Imagine if this were a football game, uh, a, a, a Super Bowl or, or the Rose Bowl or some, some championship. Imagine a college football championship was decided where the home team got to appoint the umpire and the refs. The coach of the home team is also acting as the, as the chief referee and that his assistant coaches are the umpires and his, uh, and his uh, mascot is the, is, the, uh, is the timekeeper. You know, it's the, that's, the system, that's the system we had. There'd be a national uproar. We, we couldn't go on. There'd be paralysis of the country. But, but um, you know, what happens? Look, in, in Florida 2000, you know, the campaign managers are acting as chief, chief uh, election officers or the chief election officers are acting as the Bush-Cheney campaign managers. And so, you know, just the amount of abuse and changes in the abuse of the law is just astounding. They systematically have these incredibly biased decisions and, and give the election to their, to their candidates. Um, you all know most of these things, so. Uh, transparency, I talked a little bit about exit polls that the exit polls that I worked with, um, I mentioned in the beginning how they changed the results. What they did was they corrected the results. The results were obviously wrong. They, so they systematically correct them so as to conform with the count. And uh, it was interesting. When I published my paper a few days afterwards, there was a report from my alma mater, MIT, in conjunction with Caltech, um, have established voting technology centers that produced a report saying that the exit polls were right. And the data they used were the corrected data. They used data that was corrected so as to conform with the count to prove that the count was correct. It was just incredible. I couldn't believe it. I wrote, I wrote letters to the, to, the, to the president of MIT and called him up and they said, oh yeah, we made a mistake. That was... That was it, but, but this was used in the New York Times and Washington Post to ridicule anybody who was questioning the count. And they have since issued this, they have since issued a correction, but the, of course the correction never got, never got reported in the Times and the Washington Post, which, which ran the stories. And uh, you know, so they do this thing completely in secret without any kind of explanation, and they keep the data. Getting the data from the exit poll companies was a virtual impossibility. Even, you know, we had a team from the University of Pennsylvania that offered to go on site because, you know, to protect the proprietariness of their data and to, um, to pay them for any costs they incurred. And they said, no, no, it's our data. And uh, it's, it's the data of the six major media corporations, the five broadcasters, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, and uh, the Associated Press, and they, they've sat on this data. They don't give it out, they say it's, it's theirs. And, um, and they, they change the numbers, and this is, this is the data. And that, and that lack of transparency is matched by the election system. We don't know what's going on. When you go and you vote, you push a button, 
or you send something through to get scanned, something happens within a million lines of proprietary code and the vote gets recorded or not. And it gets recorded for who you cast it for or not, and we have no way of knowing. Now, one of the things I did in the book was we contrasted the transparency and security on the Las Vegas slot machines. We didn't put that in. This, this was a big breakthrough, though. The Washington Post ran this graphic, and they put the showgirls up on this thing. They saw this good opportunity. And uh, anyways, it was, it was nice publicity. But comparing uh, Las Vegas slot machines with electronic voting, I mentioned about back, background security. But you know, in slot machines, manufacturers are suggested to background checks. Anybody who works there, nobody who has a criminal record is allowed to work for one of these companies. Of course, that's, that's a big feather in your cap if you're applying to Debolt. It's, it's something to boast about on your resume. But all kinds of things. The software, state of Nevada has access to all software, and it's illegal to use any software that's not on file. They have a chip on file in, in the state gaming office. In uh, voting machines, the state knows nothing. It's completely proprietary. There's no chip. There's no, um, no records of anything. Um, if you have a complaint, the casino has to respond immediately to the state gaming board. In uh, electronic voting machines, you have some concern. You call a board of elections. They're not going to answer. And, um, or they're unlikely to answer. You call a number that, that may or may not even work. And the complaint's in all likelihood going to be ignored. Excuse me? We should go and vote there in Las Vegas. Vote there, Las Vegas. The voting and gaming are two different things. They take, care of the, they take care of gamblers. They don't really feel quite the same about voting. You know, and we heard a lot about Ohio, but you know, that was reproduced, in, including in Nevada. Nevada was one of the other states that voted Democratic, and uh, Republicans won in 2004 and, and other years. Um, secrecy, that's the one thing that it seems that we seem good at, is secrecy and voting, but in fact, you know, secret ballot, that's what, that's what that criteria is, that we ought to have the right to, to know our vote is private. But in fact, electronic voting machines, even though they're completely secret in terms of everything else, it turns out that your vote is recorded sequentially. And if anybody from the voting machine company wants to know who you voted for, they can, they can know. So it doesn't even measure up on that count. In fact, they were ruled illegal in, in the Netherlands. This may be the strategy for getting rid of them. In the Netherlands, they were thrown out because, for this reason exactly, that they don't protect the right to a secret vote. Um, free elections. I mean, they seem sort of free. You can run for office, right? Anybody can do that. But, you know, this, I've, my background, I've taught in business schools until, until taking up this stuff. And, you know, it doesn't seem to prepare you for, for politics. They would seem to be different things. But in fact, you know, I think, you know, understanding the, the politics of this, it really doesn't look that in, different from industry. The Republicans are very much like a good corporation, and the Democrats very much like a very bad corporation. They really kind of fit the mold very, very well. Um, actually, the, the most disheartening thing of all this research, I spent 18 months writing that book, and, you know, most of the shocks, you, they're a shock, but then you get over them. But visiting the Democratic National Committee headquarters was one that, you know, still makes my heart sink anytime I think about it. You know, they, um, uh, 
You know, it's one thing to steal an election, it's another to let it be stolen. It's, it's at least the Republicans, they're fighting for their, you know, whoever it is they're fighting for. And uh, the Democrats, though, you know, they've betrayed their, betrayed their constituencies. And I, I did a, I shared a uh, platform with a chief Democratic National Committee pollster a month ago at a media reform conference. And he spoke right before me, and he, just as an aside, he was talking about how well the Democrats did in 2006. And as an aside, he mentioned, well, what we find traditionally is that we need to be at least 10 percentage points ahead in the polls to win on election day. And, uh, <laughs> what? To win by 2%, right. And, um, and so, you know, fortunately, somebody from the audience asked, you know, given what uh, Dr. Freeman said, uh, isn't, doesn't that raise some red flags? Aren't you a little suspicious of those numbers? You know, and, and he said, well, uh, you know, that's not what I was really talking about. I was just talking about how well we did, how many races we were over 10% head in the poll. So, he, so he, you know, I don't know, he's systematically avoiding, avoiding the question, but, but that attitude is pervasive in DNC headquarters. And, you know, but when you look at it, there's not a lot of competition. There's competition at some level between these two things, but you know, you see this all the time in industry. You see, you know, sort of a dominant firm and then a subordinate firm and a, and a facade of competition, like the classic examples were the cereal companies many years ago. They compete not on price, not on quality, not on nutrition, but you know, the prize in the box. And uh, the car companies, they're not competing, you know, until the foreign manufacturers came into the picture, but Ford and, and General Motors for decades, you know, they didn't compete on price, they didn't compete on quality, they didn't compete on safety, they competed on, you know, the size of the tail fins or the beauty of the model that was standing alongside the car in the ads. You know, even when Ford tried to introduce safety belts in 1950s, General Motors pressured into to taking them out of the cars. General Motors was afraid that if in fact, you know, people were thinking about safety, they might not buy cars to begin with. So they pressured Ford into taking away the safety belt. So there was no meaningful competition. And it turns out that's what we have in politics. I mean, if this was business, well, at least if this was business, they would be sued for antitrust violations. At least they would have been, you know, prior to this administration. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. Stephen Freeman. Today's show was the 2004 presidential election stolen. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You know, I've sort of been talking abstractly, but if you want details, the complicity is, is just astounding. I mean, one little known fact of the 2000 election I don't know if many of you recall that the aftermath of that election. James Baker screaming, we won the count, we won the recount, we wanted to count it again, you know, just saying whatever, whatever he thought would be effective. The truth of it is they never even did the machine recount that was required by law, let alone manual counts, but, you know, him saying whatever. And again, he's fighting. Uh, on the other side, Tom O'Neill said, well, we're not trying to slow down the process, we're not trying to obstruct you know, the thing, but we may have, won- we think we may have won this, you know, just so meek and mild, and all the time Councilman Gore to uh, resign, he lost, he got gypped, but that's life. You know, he was the one who was advising him on election night to concede, 
The thing that set that whole kind of ridiculous contestation period in, in motion as Bush being the presumptive winner and Gore being the, the sore loser challenger was Gore made an initial concession call. Ridiculously, but he did. You know, the second they were ahead, despite all the 8.3% the, the advantage in the exit polls that the um, stations originally called it for him, despite any kind of, you know, numbers on anybody on the ground who would have been, should have been looking at it, he conceded. And uh, you have to ask why the difference. You know, the Republicans were not going to concede under any circumstances. In fact, they had a plan fully in place if they, if they were to win the popular vote nationwide and lose the electoral vote to launch a massive national campaign to, um, to pressure electors to vote for them, to change their vote. And, you know, why, why was that? Why was that? As it turns out, after, the, after Cheney took office, after Bush-Cheney took office, James Baker, the, the rabid uh, leader of the Republican effort, appointed Tom O'Neill, Gore's campaign manager, to fill the seats that Cheney had to vacate in order to accept the vice president, to fill the, to, to fill the corporate board seats. And that's a pattern, you know, that's just one example. The Democrats advance in their careers by playing ball. The Republicans get ahead, Republicans get ahead by winning. Democrats get ahead in their career by playing ball. And, and, and this, it doesn't get reported. It's listed, you know, as a, a tiny little thing on page 32 of the Wall Street Journal. Um, accountability, that's the last one. We'll wrap it up after this. But the idea of, you know, government auditing themselves, you know, we have this situation where, you know, they're supposed to do a random recount in Ohio and, uh, and uh, Blackwell chooses the precincts they're going to they're gonna do the recount in. You know, that's the equivalent of me getting audited by the IRS and I'm telling the IRS, well, let's just look at my charitable contributions. I don't want to look at anything else. That, that should be enough. And, you know, we get to choose the 3% the of items that we're going to have them look at. Still, you know, all kind of things emerge, but nevertheless, you know, it's... Uh, Totally, totally unacceptable, unacceptable kind of audit scheme. And, you know, what we have is a situation where how do they get away with it? You know, we have all these things that emerge that, you know, even documented well. And uh, nobody pays a price except for a few lazy or stupid Democrats who have gone to jail from it. But... Um, you know, no Republican has, despite all the things that happened in Florida 2000, you know, this, what turned out to be a Brooks Brothers mob, the mob that stopped the count in Miami was reported as, you know, Cubans or, you know, locals. They were, they were Washington staffers, staffers of congressmen. Nobody paid a price for that. In fact, the opposite is true. It's a badge of distinction. You virtually had to have done that to have any role in this administration. The few Republicans that had or I shouldn't say few, but Republicans that had integrity, like probably the most respected Republican senator, James Danforth, he was asked by Bush to represent their case in the Supreme Court, and Danforth said, this is absurd. The Supreme Court won't hear this. This is clearly a states' rights issue. So he refused to do it. He's out. I mean, he, had no, he has no, had no role in Republican politics since then. So, you know, the accountability is that Anybody who does this, they, they don't have to worry about sleeping at night. You know, the person who outed Valerie Plame, you know, it's, uh, 
you're, you're, you're going to get off by virtue of having done things for powerful people, done things that they want done. And um, you know, Blackwell was asked by, by reporters, aren't you afraid of Ohio 2004 being the Florida of 2000, you know, when he was both, both the uh, campaign manager and chief election officer of Ohio? And Blackwell answered quite rationally, last I saw, Catherine Harris isn't in a soup kitchen, she's in Congress. She was rewarded for all her, all her service to Bush Cheney by receiving a very, very safe congressional seat. Well, it was safe. She, she thought she got high ideas and decided she was going to run for Senate. But, um, uh, and the same for others involved. Chuck Feeney also got one, the, the Republican state assemblyman who said he was going to deliver that state to Bush regardless, anything. Um, so we have government, we have the media, and we have us. Okay, that's government. Uh, so, okay, we have, I already talked about Democrats and the government itself. Um, by the media. Okay, why doesn't the media report on these things? Let's talk a little bit about that. This is a good place to do it. You probably know more about it than me. This, this university does an enormous service to the world, really, with its project censored. The media, and applause for Peter, who's, who's done that. I mean, it's, it's really, really a, a tremendous thing. Well, you know, this is really changing. This has not been reported in the press. And I and other people who've done this kind of work have faced, you know, just outright instances of censorship. I do, I do a story with New York Times reporter or Chicago Tribune reporter, and they say, well, or Washington Post, too, all these things. And they say, well, the editor didn't want to do the story. We moved on. Or, you know, they, they, they didn't want to go with it. Whatever. I, I rush out to MSNBC to do an interview. Well, uh, CNN, they don't air it. You know, they, they don't mind. They paid for me to take a limousine up to New York to do a studio interview, and they don't air it. And uh, MSNBC, well, that one, they had a good excuse. There was, I don't know if you recall, the Peterson trial reached a verdict that day, so that bumped me. Um, um, but it, the media, it, it, it just doesn't report these things. This is a taboo subject. And, you know, it's not just me. Uh, the Science Educator of the Year for 2003, big, very prestigious national award, John Allen Palos, very prominent mathematician. He's written a column for many years for ABC, ABC News, their online site. For three years prior to doing this one, they never edited a word, not one word. They didn't change a comma in any of his articles. Then he wrote one on the 2004 election, on my work in particular, and they said, we're not going there. They didn't do it. And uh, that's just the way things are. And, and, the, and what does appear in the media? This is not really anything new. Um, you know, back in the 1880s, uh, the editor of the New York Tribune said, we're really just, you know, we work for the rich. We work for those who are, who are paying, the, paying the bills. And the CIA, I mean, this is something we know from the CIA, too. This, this is things that even have cleared their censors. They're, they don't even deny this stuff, that uh, their, their former director says they own anyone of any significance in the media. This was a quote that emerged in the church hearings. It turns out that you know, large numbers of media 
people, journalists and academics are on government payroll to produce what they uh, honestly refer to as uh, disinformation, to, to get the wrong story out that, in the interest of the government. All right, but what about us? Um, we, we, don't, we don't challenge them either for the most part. I mean, probably we're not as guilty in this room as most, most of the rest of us, but the, especially the elites, we really don't. We're kind of comfortable the way things are. And I, I don't know where I got that quote from. I actually saw that on a bathroom wall once. I meant to figure out where I got it from, but, but it kind of registered. It's, I thought, very, uh, very, um, very clever and honest thing. You know, that it's sort of if voting could change things, it would be illegal. And, and you know, you put yourself in the position of the people, you know, who are, who are sort of running things, uh, sometimes called the invisible government or the government in control. And, I mean, why should they, why should they let us, you know, change the government? We think we're going to just show up once every four years and we, we get to decide. They, that's their lives. That's what they've that's what they do. I mean, we, you see it all the time. It's hardly surprising to people when they think about, you know, a union election or a corporate election or a family election. I mean, uh, those of you who have kids, you know, you let the kids vote if you don't really care what they decide. You know, when you're really in control, that's what you do. You say, well, I don't care. What's the vote on it? If it's something important, they don't leave it to just voting. And uh, the truth of it is that voting is just the bare minimum of democracy. It's really, it's really not democracy itself. And you really can't expect, if that's all you're expecting to do, if that all, is all the public is expected to do, and that is all the public thinks that democracy is, and that's what they're taught to believe it is, then um, there's no reason to expect a de democracy. What we don't have in this country, and I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody is, is really the tools of collective action. We don't really know how to work together. We don't really know how to pursue things. We, it's not even part of any kind of value. The idea of, I mean, what's valued is Rambo, you know, a guy who can go out and do things on his own and doesn't need a damn committee or anybody else to help, help, help him work something out. You know, and committee, I mean, it's just, you know, what's, it's easy to remember the name, how to spell it because there's all these extra letters that don't do anything. It's the only word in the English language that has uh, three tripled letters. And uh, so, but that's the way we think of things and the way we're taught things here. And we, we don't even know the tools of it. And it, it is shockingly different. You live in somewhere overseas, in Europe or Latin America. People do work together and there's no stigma attached to working in groups and, uh, and, and thinking of things. And that is the way to change things. I know you know, my kids are not that little anymore, but I remember when they were seven years old or eight years old and just saying, well, how could it be that some people are so rich and some are so poor? And, you know, I don't really know, but, you know, my thought is that, well, it's really kind of organization, that the, the rich are organized and the, the poor are not. You know, they're organized in a million ways. People talk about, you know, like the NFL, the commissioners, they're, 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 a group of 32 people who violently oppose any kind of socialist talk but um, behave in every manner socialist in their uh, inner workings. You know, they, they really work as a group. And, uh, and, but, but for the average person, we don't really do that very well. 
and were discouraged from doing it. But that would be the, that would be the step towards overall democratic behavior. And on that, I think I'm just going to finish, and we can have hopefully some discussion about it. been listening to Dr. Stephen Freeman. Today's show has been, Was the 2004 Presidential Election Stolen? Dr. Freeman holds a Ph.D. from MIT's Sloan School of Management. He currently serves as visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Organizational Dynamics, where he teaches research methods and survey design, a domain that includes polling. He has received four national awards for Best Research Paper of the Year on four different topics in three different fields. He is author with Joel Blyfus of Was the 2004 Presidential Election Stolen? Exit Polls, Election Fraud, and the Official Count. Dr. Freeman started the organization Election Integrity designed to launch a 2008 exit poll and systematically develop tools to investigate what really happened in the vote. Visit his website at www.electionintegrity.org. That's electionintegrity.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.